Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by Ben Green. So Ben Green is a coaching director at Front Runner Sports. He he has a Bachelor of Sports Science to his name. We have a first class honours in biomechanics. He's a World Athletics Level 4 middle distance and long distance coach and lecturer. And he has clinical interests in footwear prescription, running biomechanics, coaching education, training plans for recreational runners, and coaching elite and middle long distance runners. So he's a great guy to have on the show. And I was recommended by Raf Bohr to to get him on and um yeah welcome to the show ben thanks dane it's yeah great to be here and, and chat running with you nice i'm very interested ben to know how you got into running and um and then coaching at a young age so how did it all start yeah so i um like like most kids played played a lot of sports i was pretty avid at football and and cricket um and I guess, like, yeah, probably I, I ran just, you know, school cross-countries and, um, and athletics as, as most people did, but probably didn't really think too much of it. Um, but first, probably perked my interest, I, the high school I was, the, the local high school that I went to had a triathlon program. So I enrolled in that. I was, I was an okay swimmer. It, um, running was probably my strength. And then after doing that for a few years, um, just probably, yeah, perked my interest in, in endurance sports. I found the people involved were great. It, it sort of was a great way to obviously to de-stress after school and to, to be social and but probably I wasn't the greatest cyclist or swimmer so um <laughs> yeah pursued um started to pursue running a little bit more and that was probably nudged by the fact that I'd, I'd qualified for a state team um I think when I was 15 year 10 and um go away you know with, with, with the school school sport trip and ended up meeting like yeah some fantastic people who you know to still to this day are, are my best friends and and my coach um, was the manager, so I sort of started training, like from the, from that age, uh, a little bit more formally, and um, yeah, just just sort of fell in fell in love with it. So decided to to put sort of football and cricket on the back burner. Not that I probably would have got much further anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, just really loved you know the the, the social side of running, the, the people involved, and and the fact that uh, yeah, I was I was somewhat talented initially, and then you could start to see some improvements as you you started to train and and improve your own capacity. Nice. And who was your coach uh, back then and uh, what was your squad like? Yeah, so his name was Gareth Elliott. Um, so he, he sort of worked for Athletics uh, Western Australia at the time and and, yeah, and, and took the um, sort of the boys team away um, to, to the state cross-country trip. So um, he, he was a fantastic coach. I think he um, his, probably his greatest legacy was just everyone that he coached is still in the sport, loves running and he was fantastic at developing you know, a great culture. Um, so we had a group, so his, his nickname was G-Man, so we, we, <laughs> we called ourselves Ben G-Man. Um, so, yeah, and, and we had some really good results. Um, so probably the most prominent runner to come out of that was, was Sam McEntee, who, who you probably know in, in Melbourne. So so Gareth um, coached him, um, sort of poached him from 
<clears throat> excuse me, coached him from uh, from the Claremont Junior Football Club, and um, yeah, he obviously progressed really well. And Gareth, <clears throat> Gareth looked after him right the way through to, he, to the time he started at, at Villanova University, um, and that sort of also segued into the time I, I sort of started to take over um, a little bit of the coaching. So Gareth, um, yeah, changed jobs. He, he um, was a PE teacher. He had he had, um, had a young family and. Obviously, time was was of the essence, so he sort of trusted me to to start to to run some of the sessions with the group, and eventually I, I sort of took over that squad um, and just just really enjoyed it, and it allowed me to to sort of really um, continue to grow my interest in running and and start to share that knowledge with with obviously other people in the group. Wow! So this was at twenty. Yeah, yeah. So I was still I was still running myself. I was I was never really you know, truly competitive, um, but just really loved it and. Um, yeah, just obviously the opportunity came up, and um, didn't really think that that's where it would it would lead me to sort of still be coaching, you know, ten years later. But um, I'm I'm so glad it did because I think coaching is something that I really enjoy and allows me to stay connected to the sport of running, which which I really love. And Ben, what have your main um, events been, and and like from a personal point of view, um, with your own running career, what have some of your highlights been um, back then, and and I suppose uh, now. Um, oh, look, personally, not 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 many. Um, <laughs> I, I, in my in my training group, I, I had the nickname Mister Fourth because I had this uncanny ability at, at a state level of coming fourth. And I think I've come fourth over at the state level at eight hundred, five thousand cross country, um, and maybe some road races as well. So, um, yeah, I've I've, I've run. Um, I, I I probably my my personal achievement that I really wanted to do was get under four minutes in the 1500, um, which obviously compared to, to some of your other guests you've had is, is not that great, but that, that was a great personal milestone for me. I, I sort of been chasing it for, for quite a while. Um, I battled a lot of injuries when I was young. I, I think I had um, the tendency yeah, to, to overtrain and, and probably do a little bit too much intensity, I think reflecting back. Um, so I think once I got that balance right, I, I strung together, you know, enough training and, um, yeah, managed to get under two minutes in the 800, under four minutes in the, eight, in the 1500, um, almost got under 15 minutes in the 5000. But um, sort of by the time I was about 23, the, the coaching opportunities were, were really building. And, and from that point, I'd, I'd sort of convinced, I think, myself that if I wanted to keep running, I would probably need to start to make some sacrifices to... Um, you know, to keep improving around probably what I was doing for work. But I, I just finished honours like at uni, RAF um, had presented, you know, ongoing work opportunities for me to keep coaching. And I had the I had the squad, the, the Team G-Man squad as well. And, and I'm, I'm obviously really glad I pursued with that because we had some great outcomes. And, and to, to this day, yeah, still, um, you know, obviously really enjoyed and, and have met some incredible people along the way. So you took over... Um team g-man squad fully at 21 was it and and then by 24 you had an athlete that went to world juniors um tell us about that trip and uh um also how many were in the squad how many were you coaching at this time um yeah so so not many i think when i took over there was there would have been less than 10 um so i think sort of gareth um uh, yeah had, had sort of done an incredible job and we had a really good core group of people that just loved running and were and were just great people to be around. And um, yeah, we sort of we had this like little influx um, because some of the some of the guys at school um, had some younger guys that were coming through at their their respective high schools that they got involved in the squad. And um, one one guy's um, named Jordan Mackins sort of came to the squad after he left school. He was a he was a very talented runner. He was a national champion at 
15 in the 800, um, had run 155, but it was sort of like part-time running, part-time rugby. Um, but after he finished school, he was yeah, he was pretty committed to sort of to improve his running. So he, he joined the squad um, in what would have been sort of late 2003, I think. No, maybe late 2000, no, sorry, 2012. I'm a decade behind. Yep. Um, and he he just one of those guys that you, that you love to coach. He had he had this very natural gift. Um, he was quite fast. He was quite strong. He probably wasn't very fit. Um, so the main thing we had to do was just obviously do enough training to to keep him fast, keep him strong, but just build that base that he probably didn't have from from balancing rugby um, with his running. And I think when I started coaching him, he had run one fifty three and. Um, yeah, 18 months later, he was down to 149.3. Um, wow. He got into a great race at the, the Perth Track Classic as a 19-year-old and, um, yeah, got towed along in a, in a very good field and, and managed to run 149, which qualified him um, for the World Junior. So he went to, along with, with Luke Matthews, who was the other the other rep at, um, at that age. And, yeah, it was, um, of all places, it was at uh, Tracktown USA in, in Eugene. So... <laughs> Obviously, as like a as a runner, I couldn't turn down the opportunity to to tag along. If it was anywhere else, I probably wouldn't have gone. But because um, you have to obviously fund the fund that trip yourself, but it was just an incredible experience. I went over and um, you obviously watched him compete. He, he ran really well. It was, it was obviously an incredible strong field. He came fourth in his heat, so just sort of just missed out on making the the semifinals. But um, one of the perks of going to that was that they had uh, the inaugural like World Athletics uh, Junior co- uh, Coaching Conference, and that was incredible for me. I was still obviously pretty raw, pretty young at, at 24, and um, sort of I didn't feel I was out of my depth, but I was I was really open to, to learning and, and experiencing new things. And they had some incredible presenters, so I took a lot away from that, um, and that was that obviously really inspired me to, to obviously keep at it and, and continue to you know to, to take people to to the highest level possible. So at, at this point, were you committed to becoming a full-time coach? Like, was that the like was that in your head at, at this time? Um, I don't think it, I don't think it was in my head. I, I when I finished honors um, at uni, I think I think just the logical pathway of anyone that does honors is that they're probably going to do a, a PhD, and I probably had that in my mind. I, I enjoyed research, and I um, I sort of really liked investigating things and, and trying to answer questions. And obviously, the research side of things was was a great way to do that. But um, after yeah, four years at uni, I just wanted to take some time off, you know, focus on running and, and focus on coaching a little bit. Um, but yeah, just the coaching stuff just grew organically. And um, probably by the time I had the opportunity to go back and potentially do a PhD, I just was I was just so invested in coaching that I just thought let's let's run with it. And I was I was just really lucky with timing that that Raf had. Um, you know, a business that was was growing um, pretty quickly and, and needed someone to to sort of steer the ship from a coaching point of view. So, yeah. So basically, the the year afterwards, when I was twenty five, I, I was basically doing full time work, and it was a mixture of quite a few different things, but sort of all central to to coaching people from a yeah from a recreational through to through to an elite um, elite perspective. Nice. And what what are some of the things uh, from a coaching perspective that uh, your study um, and your honours in biomechanics and um, your sports science degree, what are some of the things that you learnt from that course that you still use today and and feel like um, sort of um, uh, shape the way you think about running and, and how you coach? Yeah, I think it's, it's really influenced 
probably more my thinking style more than anything else. I think when you go through uni and, and particularly in honours year where you're largely just doing a research project, I was lucky enough to like to work with runners. We, we were looking at sort of Achilles tendon loading in, in foot strike patterns, which was obviously a really hot topic back in, this was in 2011. Um, and I think that the main thing is I, I was just always curious. I, I had a lot of questions. Um, the more I read, sometimes the more confused I got and I just, just wanted to try and understand things and, because people naturally, when you you know when you're studying these things around bi- running biomechanics, people ask you questions, and all the time I actually just couldn't answer them. Um, so I was just really fueled by knowledge, and um, I think the honors year really teaches you to try and yeah filter information, interpret it, understand what's probably relevant and what's not. And I think that's something that um, to this day I feel is one of the benefits of, of having that. Um, that sort of honours year is just being able to look at a lot of information and say, look, is that actually relevant? Does this runner in front of me need to know that? How can I educate people around themes that I'm seeing and um, and helping people you know, towards their goals, whether that's injury prevention or, um, or or increasing performance? But, yeah, just that, that real understanding to try and, I guess, get the why behind where we're doing certain interventions and the ability to educate um and, and filter out probably the, the the unnecessary information that a lot of runners can can potentially get blinded by. Yeah, no, fantastic. So it, it um it really it's like you went into sports science largely because you had all those questions. You yeah, were just intrigued I, by I, it I liked physics at school. I liked human biology and I loved sports. So it was it was a pretty logical one for me to go into sports science. I didn't I didn't honestly know what I was going to do with it, but yeah, I, I was really fascinated by biomechanics. Just um, yeah, watching how people ran, why why did people run differently? You know, why did the best runners in the world do what they do from like a technique point of view? You know, how do you train that? Can you change it? You know, all these questions that um, I guess I, I yeah, to, to my knowledge, not not a lot of people had a lot of answers to them, and probably to this day, I, I still don't have all the answers. And yeah. I think anyone does, but um, learning yeah, learning to understand things and um, and just pursue that that knowledge and 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 try and understand things to help other people is yeah, has been a real driver for me. Yeah. And then um, uh, at the age of 26, you um, became a World Athletic Level 4 coach. Um, what's the process behind this and, and what do you have to do to, to do this? Yeah, so that, that, was, um, that was really interesting. I, um, you know, post-uni was, was obviously looking for, you know, for professional development opportunities and, um, when I when I first started, there, there was this um, uh, a bit of a, um, a transition in, in coaching licences. So the Australian Track and Field Coaches Association was the initial accreditation I had, um, and I, they, they they were fantastic. I when when I first got into coaching, and particularly when I first started taking on the squad, I you know obviously wanted to, to get an official accreditation and. Um, uh, and look after myself. So I um, I contacted the ATFCA and um, just gave them some background and said, you know, I'm, I'm studying at honours. I've, I've been coaching for this level. I've coached these athletes, et cetera. And, and they were very generous in granting me some um, sort of RPL, recognition of prior learning. So initially I was with those. And then in 2015, um, I think World Athletics had finished finalising their course syllabus and they offered a level three course which um was in the gold coast it was sort of for the whole oceania region so um so 2014 sorry um so i jumped on that it was a it was a two-week course and it cost me an arm and a leg because i had to um fly to the gold coast and pay for my own accommodation for 15 days and um and obviously wasn't working at the time but it was it was absolutely worth it to to spend two weeks 
you know, we, I think there was about 20 coaches there just um, literally living and breathing. Coaching for 15 days is is not something you can do all the time. And whilst it was tiring, I think it was really beneficial. And just getting getting in the room with 15 other coaches, looking at, say, the same situation, how would different people handle that situation, sharing ideas was just so valuable. So, um, yeah, that was, that was fantastic. Um, and then two two years later, yeah, 2016, a level four course came out. And, yeah, I was, I was obviously really keen to learn. And um, there were some fantastic coaches on that course, like Adam Diddick, the current Australian distance coach, was there. So had a great time chatting with him and, and learning off him. And um, and and then, yeah, ironically, um, I think it was two years later, I was actually facilitating that level four course. And yeah. Um, just, yeah, it was a fantastic experience. I, I was, I, I, you know, th- thought I was a little, little bit, um, you know, in my head with <laughs> with some of the people. Like Craig Mottram was in the course, obviously one of my idols, like growing up watching. <laughs> so that was a unique experience. But, like, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, I, I really love educating people and just, yeah, trying to sort of help them along that process of understanding information and, and making it quick for them. So, yeah, I'm really glad I did it. And it's, um, yeah, something that uh, I've presented quite a few courses sort of nationally and, and internationally since then that, uh, are a real joy that you know they're time consuming and they're fatiguing as I'm, as I'm sure you know with with any form of PD but they're, they're definitely valuable for me personally I learn a lot um, but it's just great to see everyone um, sort of yeah transform their knowledge in the space of, of one to two weeks yeah, yeah fantastic um what a like after doing the like facil- facilitating the whole um uh, IWF uh, coaching course and then going through it yourself um, and by the sounds of it, having those two weeks where you're brainstorming and um, uh, chatting to you know some great coaches, what a, how did that transform or change um, how you coached? Like, what can you remember sort of that time and some of the things that it sort of it made you really um, knuckle down or change? Or did what were some of your learnings? Can you remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah I can. I. Um... Yeah, before jumping on, I was actually going through a few of the notes that I made sort of through these courses. And um, I think the more, certainly in my experience, when, when I came out of uni, I just, I, I had all, I thought I had all this information um, and I just wanted to tell people. So I probably wasn't great at, um, at tailoring the information to the individual in front of me. And I think the further I've progressed with coaching and, and also the, the more I've, I've chatted with other mentors and um and you know, continue to to progress my learning. I think the biggest change is just is learning to understand the individual, and sort of like the way the way I guess I, I look at coaching is coaching is largely just around two things. It's it's knowing the person in front of you and it's knowing where they want to go. And I probably did have a good idea as to where people wanted to go in terms of okay, like if someone wants to be, you know, be able to to be a world class eight hundred meter runner, what do they have to do? And, and I I feel I, I had a reasonable assumption of that. Or if a recreational runner wants to beat their 5k personal best year what do they have to do and, and I was probably reasonably confident on that side but um learning to yeah, interpret the needs of an individual um and learning to be able to communicate that to them to get things like buy-in and understanding and, and long-term commitment I feel is probably the biggest thing that I learned that, that started with those courses because you do feel um sometimes like you can get a bit a bit trapped and isolated in your own thoughts and your own ways but when you start to see you know, in this case, like say 20 other people tackling the same problem and, you know, you get 20 different solutions. There's clearly no right solution. And so learning to sort of yeah, broaden my scope, I think it probably maybe changed the way I did 
um, a few things that would I, I would say just more generally would be around how how I could communicate with the person in front of me and, and really get them to, to, to buy into the program and to understand why they were doing it um, from, from a session to session basis, but also um, broadly speaking, eventually month to month and, and year to year and, and always telling them, always reinforcing those simple little things around, okay, this is why we're doing it, this is what we're going to do, this is how it's going to help you. Um, and feeding that into to long-term processes. Yep, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Um, Raf was right. You explained things well. <laughs> um, yeah, and then through lecturing the courses and, and working with the other coaches, um, uh, what else did you see that perhaps other coaches or you know were doing wrong? Um, uh, and like, like was there like um, we had a little bit of a chat before this and um, you, you indicated that sometimes, and I know I'm guilty of this as, as a young coach, um, trying to do too much uh, all at once. Um, yeah, was that something and, and was there anything else? Yeah, yeah I think so. That there's probably two main points that yeah. I, I, when, I, when, when we conduct these coaching courses and, and even just working with, with my team sort of here in, in Perth, there's... I think there's the tendency to want to always add things in, but probably not take things out. Um, so in, in the, where this sort of came from is um, when I was doing my honours, that there was a there's a reasonably controversial paper around barefoot running and, and foot striking by an evolutionary biologist called Dan uh, Lieberman from Harvard. And I probably don't agree with everything he says, but but one sort of theme from the the paper that he wrote and also his his um, work more broadly is that you know everything in life has a trade off. Um, so he's obviously talking from a from an evolutionary biology point of view. So if something improves, it's probably taking away the capacity for, for something else to improve. And when you look at running and programming, I think that trade-off rule is just so applicable because as we learn things as coaches, and I know I did this when I when I started and, and, and I still do on occasion, is you learn things, you think, oh, that, that's great. I, I can see how this is going to help my runner and I'm going to pop it in. Um, but we're probably not as prone to taking things out because – naturally as runners we're, we're, we're numbers driven we like to see numbers go up and, and obviously um, adding new things in is, is really exciting for the athlete but just as a coach yeah being probably having that broader perspective around okay like what is this session going to do um, and, and what are the benefits so do, is it justified as, as being put into the program in addition to what they're already doing um, but then also learning from a coach okay what's like what system is being stressed what um, potential fatiguing factors are related to this training and then how's that going to impact um, what the uh, what the athletes are already doing and just like a really common example that probably I find a lot of coaches will do is, is training like things like pure speed or the neuromuscular system so if we look at if we look at any top end speed running which I think for, for middle distance runners 800 1500 I, I personally feel is, is very valuable where if we can improve their maximal running speed over over 30 to 60 meters uh, which is largely training, you know, training that nervous system response, so activating the muscles and improving turnover, improving stride length, etc. Um, it's just not going to happen unless they're fresh. So if they're coming in off, off big mileage or they're doing big sessions or they've done hills the day before or they've done gym, there's just literally no point in doing it because the thing that you are trying to adapt um, is actually just not in, in a position to adapt. So that's sort of something that I feel is like is a really sort of practical takeaway for a lot of people that if you want to train pure speed, and I think it's now getting sort of thanks to the work of guys like Gareth Sanford and, and other researchers that are promoting things like the anaerobic speed reserve. So sort of the difference between how fast can someone move at a maximal speed and 
and what's their best aerobic pace or, or VO2 max. I think that's starting to become a really common theme in, in middle distance running. You need to work both. But just, yeah, for coaches to understand when in the program or when in the week or the, the, the training cycle that they're performing, when is it realistic to get the adaptations that are associated with that type of, um, of training? Because, um, yeah, it's just easy to pop it in. But if you're actually not getting you know, the adaptation that you want, then yeah, it's probably not worthwhile at all because it might just be um, adding in more fatigue that's preventing you from adapting to what you're already doing. I know another one that um, a lot of uh, runners that I chat to that um, when I'm sort of advocating, oh, you need to do strength training is like, where where do you put it in? Um, where do you put it in during the week? Um, uh, and then everyone that I've talked to, they seem to... Um, say that it, it depends on the person and, and what else is going on, I suppose, in their life. And uh, um, do, do you have any um, sort of um, general principles with um, what you think about when, when you're trying to um, organise your training around strength training? Yeah, it's a great question and, and something that you definitely battle with uh, on an individual basis because everyone yeah, everyone's different and and I guess it, it comes down to, again, that why. So why are you doing strength training? And I think for most people I work with, it's, it's two, two, one of two reasons. They're, they're either injured and they're trying to improve load tolerance to an area um, or they're, just, they're looking to get a bit faster um, or a bit stronger sort of later, later into the race if they're a distance runner. So when you're looking at that, I think the, the, the one buy-in principle that I feel is the sticking factor to strength training is, is probably repeated injury where probably most runners inherently are not as motivated to go to the gym as they are to run. So um, to get them to do it is, is firstly a challenge, I find, but yeah, particularly ones that are maybe suffering just yeah, injuries a bit more, than, obviously, than what they like, that could be a real good driver for the coach to say, hey, you know, let's look at this as an opportunity. Let's maybe work um, to factor in strength training as part of your week. We, you can start to justify it to them by explaining that there is often a lot of performance benefits. So the distance runners, you know, 5K and above, it's it's probably that running economy. So if they can run the same pace um, for their race but use a little bit less energy, and then even for the marathon runners, just to be able to hold form and, and posture and delay a bit of onset of musculoskeletal fatigue late into the race, that could be a real big driver of performance. Or for like the middle distance runners, just to be able to get yeah, a little bit more explosive, a little bit more power, work on things like plyometrics and, and strength of the posterior chain can be a big driver. So... I think it's getting that buy-in is the really critical one. And then um, the, the other thing that probably comes in is if you chat to any strength coach or physio or um, person from the other side of the fence that's working in the, I guess, the pain or the rehab space is I find they, they really want to push for three times a week in the gym. And I just personally find unless they're somewhat professional um, or they're not working full-time or studying full-time, I just don't think it works. Um, uh, if it does, fantastic. But I feel sort of two a week is, is probably the right balance for a lot of people I coach. Um, that can be sustainable. It can be consistent and it can be built in around the week. I think if once you get to three, yeah, just um, unless there's the adequate time for recovery where they're not working full-time or studying full-time and they can fit it in, fantastic. But the two a weeks, yeah, generally what we strive for. And the main principle that um, that I would work with is just I just don't want it to affect their running. So the, the running is the main driver of adaptation to their performance. And if we're looking at gym, gym is, is complementary to that. It shouldn't be supplementing it unless unless there is an injury and they can't be getting through the volume of running that they would like. So, yeah, just to, as a general week, uh, um, to, to give you like an example, if I'm working with a, a middle distance runner, 
we might train pure speed on a Monday. So on Sunday, they might do a light jog, nothing too fatiguing. Um, they're fresh enough, they're ready to handle some, some top-end speed on Monday. We then might do like an aerobic session on Tuesday, um, so VO2 max or repetitions or intervals, those type of things. Um, so I, I really don't want to do it on Monday or Tuesday because Monday, if we did gym on Monday, we're, we're defeating the purpose of doing speed. And if we did it on Tuesday, that, that's one of the key sessions of their week to drive adaptation in, in middle distance performance. So I probably don't want to do it on Tuesday. Um, so then Wednesday, um, I make a priority that most of the people um, uh, that are on that structure, that, that's probably their key gym day. So some of them will jog in the morning, they'll gym in the afternoon or, or vice versa, and some people will just do gym. And that's probably like the, the, the hardest or the heaviest session of the week. So if they do strength training, like some squats or deadlifts or calf raises or any exercise that's probably inducing muscle fatigue um, and, and inducing strength gains, that, that would typically be on a Wednesday. We then might do another aerobic session on a Thursday, but it's probably not the most important aerobic session. So if they did a fartlek or a tempo run or something, and if they carried a bit of fatigue into that, I think that's okay because they can still achieve the desired adaptation. Um, then sort of like there's a little bit of variance here. So some people that would do their seconds gym on a Friday, um, other, others would have a full day off just depending on, on their, their life and, and how it sort of balances out. Um, and then we would generally do another session on Saturday, which is sometimes a second track session um, or a hill session. And so what I generally do is if the, the runners are doing it on a Friday, they'll, they'll do it Friday morning. So they get 24 hours before their Saturday morning session. Um, or if they're doing it on Saturday, we'll do a Saturday morning session and then about 3 p.m., so sort of about four to five hours afterwards, they'll do their second session. But that sort of becomes like a bit more of a supplementary session where they're, particularly the ones that are training in the morning on Saturday, they're not going to get obviously the same strength gains given a little bit of fatigue, but it can be that complementary one to um, to add on to what they've already done on a um, on a Saturday uh, on a Wednesday. Sorry. So I think that's that's what I'm working to. Obviously, it's a little bit different for everyone, but... I just try to make sure that it's um, it's sustainable week upon week and month upon month because your know, strength training, like running training, if you do it um, inconsistently, you're just not going to get the adaptations. But importantly, I just don't want it to impact their key sessions of the week. So if there's a real top-end aerobic or anaerobic workout, I think we definitely need to steer clear of doing that within 24 hours um, before. And if there's pure speed, we definitely don't want to be doing it in the 24 hours before as well. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And that's a really good insight to how you think and how you're, you know, appreciating the purpose of each session and you're, you're thinking about, um, I think that's what a lot of, like, particularly myself, um, and, and then I've seen it a lot with a lot of the patients that I've treated, we're always thinking about what we're doing and, and the training we're putting in rather than the, the recovery. And would you say that a lot of us are under recovered and overtrained and like, is in like, um, yeah, I don't think, I don't hear a lot of people thinking about um, the time between sessions or they're just trying to squeeze things in and make it work, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So as we said before, I mean, I think run is inherently motivated um, internally. They're, they're, there's, there's very, um, very rarely, if ever, a time where you're probably telling runners to do more. Um, they're the ones driving it and you're probably just trying to steer the ship and make sure that yeah, what they are doing is sustainable. And yeah, one of those um, one of those factors that determines how sustainable training is, is obviously the recovery. You're only recovering or you're only adapting to the training that, that you're recovering from. So um, a great quote that I learned at this World Junior Coaching Conference was, 
sort of think about training as like you're planting seeds. Um, when you're eating and drinking, hydrating and refueling, you're sort of fertilizing your garden. Um, but you're actually only growing the garden when you go to sleep. Um, so if you can tell people that and, and actually say, look, you're probably planting all these seeds in the ground, but if you're not fertilizing it um, and you're actually just like you're not letting it grow by sleeping, then you, you're just you're wasting your time. Um, you might be getting a bit of positive reinforcement from doing more training, but eventually that's probably going to catch up with you with just either underperformance, so just not being fresh enough to perform well, and um, or worst case scenarios, obviously those those, those long term injuries that continue to develop because of just yeah too much stress being put on the system. Um, so yeah, just I think education there is just so important. So we generally have like a bit of a hierarchy when we talk about running. So running is probably the main thing that people are motivated for and what they like to do. But on that same level, literally needs to be nutrition and sleep. And if you can educate people on saying, okay, if you're doing more of one side of the equation, which is the running, we need to, one, we need to be fueling more and probably fueling more um, specifically around hard days of training and challenging days of training. And then we need to be, you know, potentially monitoring or indexing our sleep uh, quantity and quality and taking advantage of times when we can sleep a bit more um, or when there's an increased period of, of high quality training and if there's a lot of people are quite naive to that I think they they probably don't um, value sleep and fueling as much as and probably you know I wouldn't say waste their time but they probably spend the time on things like stretching and rolling and compression which you know potentially do have a benefit but if again if we're not sleeping or, or we're not refueling we're, we're just not giving our body the opportunity to adapt to the training that they're doing fantastic that's that's such a good message and how do you Ben monitor your training loads with some of the individuals that you coach um, with front runner and um, like do you have like do you have um, certain um, metrics that you follow and and what platform do you use and um, yeah how do you ensure that people are um, uh, yeah adapting their trading accordingly and and uh, uh, making sure that they're um, yeah staying in that right balance um of training to get better but not overtraining. Yeah. yeah i think the the, the best thing that that raf uh has set up with front runner is, is we have a monthly one-on-one -on -one -on -one meeting with every client and i think that becomes the absolute best opportunity to relay messages so we we basically we check in with how they're going very open-ended questions i want them to tell me how they're feeling how they perceive their last block of training is is going How's life going? Um, you know, for those that are studying or working or have family, etc. Um, you know, and just really get an understanding as to where they are right now. Um, and that subjective information, I feel, is just so valuable in a one-on-one -on -one setting because you can communicate, obviously, regularly at, at squad training. Um, for instance, if you see them or you know through email or, or other messaging apps to get a sense. But if you can actually just sit down and get people's attention, we generally do it for half an hour every month. I feel that's the most important thing because we can really get buy-in and, and relay um, important information and, and, and get for us as coaches the information we need out of the athletes. Um, and then secondary to that, um, we use a software called Training Peaks, which um, yeah, I imagine you and, and a few other coaches are familiar with. And yeah, yeah look, that's, that, that's revolutionised um, our coaching um, from a time efficiency point of view and, and also just from a metric point of view, I think, if you're coaching a lot of people, it's yeah, it's an incredibly valuable tool to get objective insight. So, for those that aren't aware, what what Training Peaks is is it's an it's an app where we can populate training. So I can fill in a calendar uh, for an athlete. The athlete gets a log on. They can see what their training is. 
Um, but then also on the flip side, we can sync it to their Garmin or, or GPS device and we can start to monitor their training loads um, through both volumes. So how much running are they doing, uh, the intensity. Um, that uh, We can run through a bit of a zone model uh, later if you, if you sort of like to, to discuss that. But in the meeting, what we would look at is look at some of these objective markers and, and just understand and try and link that sort of objective and, and subjective feedback that we're getting um, so before the meeting, often what I'll do is I'll jump onto training peaks and I'll have a look at some of the charts. So has their training progressed? Has it stabilised or has it dropped off um, a little bit? Um, and then to start to ask questions. So if it's dropped off, for instance, was that because um, they were sore or they were a little bit unwell or just yeah, did life get in the way? Um, if they're progressing, you know, do they feel on top of the training? Are they feeling you know, tired, sore, et cetera? Um, and then sort of further to that, the other great sort of addition Training Peaks made was probably maybe three years ago is um, just the addition to sort of daily metrics. So they can put what's called like a feel score. So I think there's one of sort of five different smiley faces that they can put in. So it tells you how they feel or how they felt when they were running. Um, a bit of an RPE score out of 10 um, and they can write comments as well. So I really encourage all my athletes, whether they're recreational or elite, to, to sort of fill that in, especially if I don't get to see them at group training for some uh, for some runners, they wouldn't attend squad training at all. For other people, I might see them up to, you know, four times a week. So for the ones that I don't, just getting a sense, I can see the objective data. I can see what they've done, how fast it was, whether it was the same or different to what was planned. But if I can also understand how it felt um, and start to recognise patterns. So if someone's consistently just saying, okay, this training is way too hard or way too easy, clearly we need to dig a bit deeper um, and, and probably the first port of call is just saying, okay, how's, how's life going? Are they, are they in an exam period if they're at, at uni? Are they, um, is, are they going through, um, you know, some challenges in, in their personal life that might be affecting their recovery or their ability to focus on their running? And um, if we, the, the quicker we can get on top of that, and if they uh, often, the, the meetings are a great chance to be proactive with that. So understanding what's coming up in their next month of training and, and planning around those really stressful situations um, but also sometimes runners, um, or I would say all runners are stubborn to some extent and they probably think they can bulldoze through um, some of the challenges. So w when you start to see these these figures where just, okay, executed training wasn't quite at planned training level or, or they're saying it's probably a bit harder than what I would have interpreted, it, you know, just really getting on the front foot and communicating with them and saying, hey, what's, you know, tell me how you're feeling, what's going on, do we need to make some changes? Um, and I feel I've been probably a bit, a bit more assertive in that in like the last couple of years, just sort of seeing seeing patterns where probably runners, you know, are obviously prone to overestimating their own capacity. And I think now once you start to work with runners, you know, for a decent period of time, you can read them pretty well. And I think I've gotten a lot better at just getting on the front foot and being proactive and probably telling people to either do a bit less or changing things, um, just do it with their with their long term, you know, health and, and performance in in mind. That's great. And and with a runner like that, if they are because you know, runners being stubborn, um, you know, often um, I, I've been one of them and I coach a few of them. Um, they often just, yeah, like you say, try to bulldoze through, um, you know, exam periods or stressful stressful periods where um, life stresses are high. Um, how, how important is, is um, uh, listening to that aspect of your life and, and why is it important? Um, because um, yeah, it's uh, it's a common thing. We just get obsessed by the numbers, obsessed by what's on the training program to keep going. Um, but yeah, why why should should runners 
um, uh, yeah, I suppose being more appreciative of those internal loads. Yeah, I think the, the biggest reason is running takes time and you can't force it. And if you start to look at... Um, yeah, if you start to look at the way most people view running, it's probably with that pretty myopic lens where they'll look at literally just what they've just done and they'll often extrapolate that to to, um, to mean a, a much greater period of time than, than probably what it truthfully means. So if they've had a great session, they probably feel they're, they're going really well. If they've had a poor session, they think they're not going that well. And this is where something like Training Peaks can actually be very valuable because you've got objective feedback, things that they've done, from their GPS watch to say, oh, hey, look, you're actually probably not going as bad as what you think. Look back at last week's workout. Look, um, Let's look at this time last year or let's look at this time last month and actually start to show them some progress because they're probably just blinded by the feedback they've had from that one workout. And, yeah, it could be like in Perth, for instance, this is starting to get warm and, you know, runners start to to train and they they might do a threshold run and they think, gee, that was that was hard. Like, what's going on? Um and, you know, their, their, their stubbornness comes through and they, they obviously want to hit the same paces and numbers that they normally would. And I can say, okay, look, it, it's obviously getting warmer. Our body's not quite as economical as, as what it would be in the, um, in the cooler weather that we've experienced. Um, or if someone's going into a, a period where, yeah, maybe just they're, they're not going that well because of maybe, say, an exam stress or a busy period at work, we can actually just bring up some numbers to say, hey, look, you're actually doing enough to maintain at the moment. So let's keep doing that. We don't necessarily have to be progressing all the time. And I can maybe reference that back to a, a point in time where, you know, maybe they ran their, their 5K PB and we might say, okay, here's roughly where your fitness was when you ran this 5K. You're actually in a very similar position now. And if we can, you know, keep maintaining that at a minimum and progress it when life becomes a bit more stable, then we can continue to build. So just having those reference points, I think, is so valuable because we can, yeah, we can miss the mark if we're just going off what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah. That data, that data collection, you know, we through training peaks for some of our athletes, we've been coaching them for about seven years now. So to have that amount of data and to be able to reference it over time and just compare it to their own context in previous years is, I think, is a really great tool to get to get buy-in and to reinforce that message that, okay, let's think a bit more broadly and let's accumulate more consistent training by maybe backing off a bit now um, in order to string together the, the necessary weeks and months for all the systems that we're building you know, primarily aerobic and, and muscular systems, obviously, for runners are the, the main ones. And, and really, we're talking a minimum four to six weeks here before really there's going to be any significant adaptation to those systems. So if we get too caught up in, in day-to-day and to an extent week-to-week, we, we're, we're probably missing the mark and potentially not building that long-term foundation that's going to be the, the bigger driver towards their goals. Yeah, that's um, another fantastic point. Um, and it's it's something that... Um, yeah, I see day to day, like, um, and with the athletes I, I coach, like it's, um, it, it's so easy to just, um, yeah, get stuck in, um, like if you've had a bad session because it's been hot and, um, you think, oh, okay, I'm not fit anymore, but then you quickly forget the great session you had last week. Um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, great point. And, and, um, yeah, so many of us are guilty of that. Um, with... With, um, yeah, I wanted to go on to just uh, with things like um, uh, footwear prescription and just a few more technical kind of things. Um, how um, detailed do you sort of get when you, um, when you talk about uh, things like, uh, yeah, footwear prescription and, and runners that are focusing on, um, I don't know, 
like the real gritty detail of training. Um, like I think it's easy to get stuck um, in the detail at, at times. Um, obviously, the de detail matters here and there, but it's um, it's easy to forget the the basics. Um, do you have anything to say of that to that, Ben? Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I think we need to sort of understand things from that from that hierarchy point of view and. As I referenced before, I think that the number one thing is okay, like find a sustainable, consistent training routine, um, be well fueled, um, and and sleep a lot. So often the first referral we might give to people is if, if people have a lot of questions and they're un, uncertain, it's probably a sports dietitian. I feel that's like the number one referral for a, a running coach where if people can get that fueling strategy right, that they're probably gonna see the, the best returns on that on that investment. Um, we're then probably looking at like a strength referral, so a physio or a strength coach, I think after that to sort of assist runners in in probably doing what I would say is the number one thing for, for to improve your running outside of running itself. Um, so that extra stimulus for either injury prevention or, or, um, or performance gains. But then you sort of like after that, that's probably when you start to look at the real specifics of things like footwear. Um, so I like I, I love footwear. So I, I, I consult for a, a running specialty store here in Perth called the Running Centre and um, worked retail there. Um, so when I was, I was fresh out of uni and yeah, just, just sort of love, love everything to do with shoes, given that sort of biomechanical interest. So I'm probably, yet yeah, I'm, I'm probably a bit more proactive. I'd say than most coaches in, in prescribing or, or assisting runners with footwear. But I think the key is that, that understanding the hierarchy first, if people have a lot of questions about shoes, which they, they normally do, it's just probably realigning them and saying, okay, look, you, you know, your query is valid, but let's probably look at this and this first. Um, but footwear, look, footwear can certainly play a role in, in performance and, and injury prevention. We're obviously seeing the, the gains in performance start to come to the fore now. You know, in the last three to four years with obviously the, the Nike Vaporfly sort of, yeah, starting to, to, to really change the, the footwear industry and, and challenging all the companies to produce better tech and find that balance where we can get really cushioned shoes that are super light and super responsive and that's obviously perked the interest of, of a lot of runners. They're thinking they can get, you know, a bit quicker. Um, so it's a good sort of segue for me to sort of, if they bring that up to discuss, okay, look, let's yeah, look at the role of footwear. And there's, I probably see footwear as being, um, or having two major impacts on the runner. So firstly, it's a way to achieve variation. So when you think about running, running is an inherent, inherently repetitive sport. So, when, you know, when we run, we, we take roughly 600 steps a kilometre. And if we're running the same pace on the same surface in the same shoes repetitively, we're sending load to the to the same areas and the same structures. So um, if we do, if a runner wants to be increasing their load, like say they want to put an extra run in a week or they want to lengthen their long run or over, over the years they're accumulating more training, one index that, that I would sort of encourage all runners and, and coaches to employ is just like some form of variability index. So how much variability is someone getting in the week? So there's always going to be some variability um, where obviously like uh, we, it's impossible to replicate the exact same thing, obviously every single run, but um, that, you know, most coaches are pretty good at, at having obviously a periodized program. There's different sessions in the week. There's, there's build weeks, there's recovery weeks, etc. cetera. Um, we can look at surfaces and hills as being like a strategy for variability. So the, the big thing there is if, um, if we run say the same pace, on a different surface, we're generally not going to experience um, more or less force, but where that force goes starts to become a bit different. And like the best example that most people would be aware of is if, if you're running on concrete, the concrete's obviously not moving, but your your muscles and, and your your joints in particular are going to give a little bit. So we lose a little of that stiffness in our leg. 
But if you were to run, you know, on the beach, for instance, in the soft sand where the sand is actually giving underneath you, we really have to stiffen our leg up to actually get, you know, get any propulsion. So if we have a mix of, mixture of surfaces, probably not to that extreme, but we were running on some grass, some, some limestone trails, some path, and also some, some hills where we're going up and down, then we're just asking the body to do different things. And I think that's like particularly relevant, unless there'd be a reason not to, where, you know, some people, if they have inherent ankle instability, for instance, or or heels are maybe going to load up the knee joint a bit more. We've got to be mindful of that. But um, unless there's a reason not to, we would encourage any sort of easy aerobic volume orientated run to be done with, with as much variety as possible. So yeah, chopping and changing surfaces between the run, getting some light heels up and down. Um, but then footwear sort of becomes that final factor where if we run in different shoes, again, we can send load to different areas. And to try and keep it really simple, essentially the less shoe you've got on the end of your foot, the more that load's going to be a bit more distal towards the ankle. So if we take the extreme example, we didn't have any shoes on at all, we were barefoot, then things like our plantar fascia, our Achilles tendon, our metatarsals, our calf muscles, et cetera, they're doing a far greater proportion of the work than if we were in any shoe. If we then go to a very thin-soled shoe like your traditional racing flats, then the foot and the ankle are still doing the bulk of the work, but there's a little bit of protection. And then we get to maybe the extreme where we get into like a Hocker Bondi or something like that that's, yeah, maximal shoe, you know, 30 to 40 miller cushioning, really rigid under the arch. We're probably taking away the, the function of the, those elastic structures of the foot and the ankle, but obviously that load's got to go somewhere. So typically the knee joint, you know, and the hip joint start to um, to increase a bit more. So we can be quite tactical here in looking at the purpose of the run. And if someone wants to go quick or, or they're, they're not doing a huge volume of running, then they're probably getting into something a bit lighter and a bit more flexible is, is potentially going to be an advantage. So long as that's compensated for, where if they're doing a bit more volume and there's a bit more repetition, then and, and particularly it's at a slower pace, then maybe we can get into something with a bit more cushion to to give those structures like the foot and the ankle a bit of a rest when um, to recover from the harder intensity work and also to accumulate more volume long term. So just yeah, trying to align probably things like the training zone or the intensity that they're with with the right type of shoe. And then importantly, having different shoes through the week that they can rotate through to align with the purpose of that run, I think is really important. Nice. Um, ben, you've mentioned um, training zones a few times um, and the zone model. Um, yeah, how do you use that with your coaching and with the athletes that you coach? Yeah, this, is, this has been a real valuable tool. I think um, when most runners start, they yeah, they probably have you know, you know some some idea of, of obviously running it at different paces, and you know probably probably their events dictate the the race paces, or they might say, okay, I run at five k race pace, or this is my marathon pace, etc. Um, so as a coach, yeah, I feel this is this is you know one of our most important tools to get that that external load right because most runners are probably pretty good at quantifying the volume that they do. Like you ask any runner how many k's a week they run, and they'll probably give you a a pretty accurate answer straight away, but that um, that distribution of volume becomes so important as people's loads start to improve, and, and particularly as we're trying to maximise or, or optimise the the training load that they're doing. So, um, when you look at most models, they're like some some use a three zone model, some use a five, and some use a seven. Um, but essentially, they all revolve around this, the, the the same thing. So. If we're looking at aerobic sports, so the 800 and above being sort of like largely contributed by the aerobic energy system, we can stress that energy system to to a different level. And 
the two main points that we want to be aware of are what we would call your first and second lactate thresholds. So some people might call this aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold or LT1, LT2. So, um, yeah, what, what I generally um, educate the runners is um, with around their zones is we need to know where those two points are because they give us a very different training stimulus if we go past those thresholds. So the first lactate threshold or, or LT1 or aerobic threshold, if um, depending on, on yeah, sort of your, your terminology, essentially that's the point where if we stayed below that or slower than that pace, there'd be a very minimal change to, to what we would call our lactate level. So we're always going to have some lactate in our system, even at rest. And if we, and for most runners that are that are reasonably well conditioned to the the distance that they're about to, to run, so maybe a five k, ten k run, and that just went out there subjectively, very easy, comfortable. Um, their lactate levels are probably going to stay very stable. They're not, going to, they're not going to increase. Now, if that same runner was to just gradually lift their pace and start to increase it, everyone would get to a point where they subjectively go, "Oh, hang on, this isn't easy anymore." It's probably not hard, but it's gone to a point where it's like, okay, I'm not quite as comfortable. My breathing rate's gone up. Uh, my heart rate's going up. My concentration's just a bit sharper. That's the point where they've gone past their aerobic threshold. And we just start to see a bit of a, a gradual rise in the lactate in the blood and the muscles. Um, and so once they go past that lactate threshold, we would sort of say they're in like a tempo zone. And physiologically, what would be happening is there's there's some lactate. So they're producing lactate but importantly, they're clearing it out. So it's not accumulating and it's not really going to stop them running the pace that they're running, but subjectively, they've gone past that that easy or comfortable point just to a, you know, what we would call a steady or a tempo. So there's a bit of engagement. There's a bit of purpose to the run and they probably couldn't stay there indefinitely, but they could stay there for a, a fair period of time, 30 to 60 minutes if they really wanted to. Um, if a runner then kept going, kept getting faster, we'll get to this sort of second, what we call lactate threshold where... Essentially, this is you know what most runners would probably call the red line, um, where they could probably go right up to that. But as soon as they go past it, they go from feeling strong to to to, to tired and fatigued, and eventually having to to slow down. So, sort of practically speaking, this is like typically a best thirty minute race pace. So, if someone's you know just going as hard as they possibly could, they're in a race. You know, for, so for some of the obviously the elites, that's probably their ten k race pace. For some recreational runners, it might be close to their five k race pace. Um, but if we can sort of differentiate those zones and the three zone model is, is is quite simply, okay, if we're below aerobic threshold, we're easy. If we're in between that aerobic and anaerobic threshold, we're, we're sort of tempo or moderate. And if we're past the anaerobic threshold, we're, we're hard. Um, so that's a really simple one. And you can sometimes look at sort of just um, monitoring the amount of time people are spending within those zones. Um, what we use at front runners is, is a very similar principle, but just due to the specificity of those two thresholds, we actually align them with a zone. So zone one would be below the aerobic threshold. Zone two would actually be the point of aerobic threshold. So that point where they go from producing negligible lactate to, to a bit of increasing lactate. The, the zone in between the two thresholds would be tempo and they can typically stay there for you know a, a 30 to 60 minute period. Marathon runners sometimes longer where they're just, they're in that process of producing like clearing lactate. And then uh, often one really critical point for a lot of distance runners is to train that anaerobic threshold. So sort of sit right on that point where their lactate system is producing the same amount of lactate that the aerobic system is able to clear. So they're not accumulating, but they're right on that point where if they were to go faster, they would produce more lactate than what they could clear. And eventually the fatigue associated with that would cause them to, to slow down. 
and then the, the VO2 max or sort of maximal oxygen consumption, that would be that zone sort of just past um, the anaerobic threshold. And, and that's probably where we would do some interval work. So, you know, target 1,500, 3,000 metre race pace for some of the middle distance runners. And so just from a communication point of view, that becomes like a really critical point where we would start to call our sessions based around the zone. So we're saying we're doing a tempo run and educate the runner on what's happening within their physiological system. So um, what would be common, you know, with most runners is they do a tempo run and they overcommit and they start to produce too much lactate, their form drops and their pace drops. And that's just, that's just a great um, segue into educating them and saying, okay, probably from what we've seen, here's a zone that would indicate you're in tempo. You probably went a bit past it you know, um, and, and reinforcing to them actually why they're doing the training so they can buy into that process long-term and eventually get the get the adaptation that was um, that was designed when this, this session was written because, yeah, it's very easy for people just to think, you know, faster is better and, you know, depending on what your session is, that's true. So if you're doing VO2 max and you go faster, then fantastic. But, yeah, if you're doing these sort of sub-maximal or below anaerobic threshold workouts, sometimes a better reflection is, you know, how comfortable you actually felt staying in that zone or maybe the period of time that you actually spent in that zone, particularly for people that are looking at, say, the half marathon and marathon event, which, you know, inherently is a sub-maximal activity. It's not testing you about how fast you can run. It's typically testing how efficiently you can cover a certain amount of distance. So, yeah, those zones become very valuable and that they become a bit of a metric for, for things like training peaks to understand and just quantify the intensity of running depending on what zone they are in. So, becomes very valuable for me as a coach to interpret and to understand their, their external training loads, but also as a point of education to translate that to the runner so they know what they're doing. When they're starting to get these subjective feelings out on the out on the course, they can um, they can understand what's going on and, and potentially rectify a situation where they maybe do go a bit too quick too early. Nice. And Ben, are you using um, lab testing and heart rate monitors um, as well with your athletes to to work out these zones or um, is it largely subjective? Yeah, it's a good question. When, when we first started, and, and again, I, I was sort of fresh out of uni and, and really keen to sort of implement all this knowledge. And of course, like a VO2 max test or a, or a lactate threshold test is, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly a gold standard to identify these zones. I think for most runners, once you once you coach them for long enough, you, you can very clearly, uh, clearly pick up where their training zones are. But to sort of short circuit that just but more from a costing point of view um, and also an efficiency point of view, we've just been imp implementing some field testing. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the main one that we want to try and establish is what would, a, what would a distance runner and a middle distance runner to an extent, what would their best 30-minute pace be? And that becomes a very good practical estimate of their anaerobic threshold. So <clears throat> the principle behind that is, no matter who you are, we can't sustain a pace above our anaerobic threshold. So we can't be accumulating lactate for, for greater than half an hour. So even if we're if we're a professional runner, we're very well trained, everyone's sort of typically got that ceiling where we can't accumulate lactate. We can have a fair bit in our blood and our muscles, but we can't continue to accumulate for more than half an hour. So if we get a, a good practical estimate of 30-minute pace, that becomes like a pretty good gauge as to what their zone four or threshold is. And from that point there, we can make some reasonable estimates as to how their tempo and their steady and their easy paces would be. And so the, the best way we could do that is if they've done a race, then fantastic, we're going to use that. So things like park run become fantastic where if someone's gone and done a 5K as quickly as they can or, or we might actually go to park run with that purpose 
which unfortunately obviously we can't do at the moment, um, but have a bit of a field test where if there's a competitive environment around them and they're doing a five or a 10K run and you tell them just, yeah, give it your best effort, we'll see how you go, that can, that can be a very good starting point. Or even for runners that are maybe not that conditioned, so just this simple action of running five or 10K might actually be a big challenge. There's a good field test called Cooper's test that we use quite a bit. And this is sort of like an old school army or, or military test um, of aerobic endurance. So just it's just a 12 minute run for distance, but the same purpose, cover as much distance as you can in 12 minutes. So we use that for middle distance runners. So probably runners that aren't doing as much volume and, and probably their musculoskeletal system is not quite um, resilient enough to handle 30 minutes of really hard running or for recreational runners just getting started. It's a little bit less intimidating um, and a bit more sort of user friendly. So we've, we've got a, on our website, um, frontrunnersports.com.au, there's just a calculator that people can use. So they plug in their 12 minute distance and that gives like a pretty good estimate of the, the five training zones. So yeah, whenever we first start coaching, that's one of the first things we'll do. We'll either like, draw upon data that they've already done, which, which might be a time trial or a previous race, or we might be proactive in getting them to do that Cooper's test or, or maybe going down and doing a 5K time trial just so when we're planning tempo runs, we can give them all the subjective advice, so things like maybe an RPE score out of 10, how hard they're working, um, but we can also give them a pace just so most runners, I, I feel, are pretty familiar with pace. If you say, you know, yeah, Dane, let, let's run 4.30 per K or let's run 5 or let's run 3.30, most runners inherently will have a good understanding as to what that is, whereas if you start to throw heart rates, paces, lactates, they Okay, what, what, what on earth does that mean? So yep. if we can give them subjective information, particularly an RPE score out of 10, that's good, but combine that with an objective met, uh, metric like pace, I think that's a great way to give them just enough tools to self-regulate when they're out on course and, and therefore achieve the purpose of the training session. And rather than over-confuse it. Yeah, yeah. correct. Nice. Um, ben, that's just so much good information. Um you're 30 now and you've been coaching full-time for roughly five years. Um, you actually manage a team of 10 coaches via Frontrunner. Um, what are you most excited about with Frontrunner going forward and, and the athletes that you coach? Yeah, oh, look, I just love running. So um, coaching, you know, coaching for me is just a, a fantastic way to, to, to stay involved and, and to help so many people and, I think what's what's really exciting, Raf's obviously been a really big driver of this here in, in WA and, and Australia more broadly, that you know, running is, is starting to be seen a little bit more professionally. And I think the opportunity for coaching is um, you know, certainly in my lifetime is is as strong as it's ever been where if people do wanna, you know, wanna start to coach and they wanna help people, I think there's a platform and a thirst for knowledge, you know, among recreational runners to to, to continue to learn. And for me that that's probably like the the, the big challenge now is is obviously I love coaching people and I love seeing you know everyone from elite to, to recreational runners achieve their goals and often that's they're, they're things that they they just they can't picture themselves doing but with a long-term approach and a, and a specific approach that's tailored to them you can you can obviously achieve some incredible things but probably the main thing I'm looking forward to is just yeah just seeing running and, and coaching in particular you know grow so we, we do a lot of courses here to, to educate coaches um, I think once once people do their their official accreditations they might get their level one level two you know all the way up to obviously level four um in a formal setting but then they're sort of often just you know left to their own devices so through, through front runner we 
We do a lot of coach education where um, it, you know, it's a somewhat clinical setting um, and, and courses and, and mentorships and things like that where if you know if coaches want knowledge, we're, we've obviously got a lot of experience between Raf and I and we, we really want to help people you know, continue to be able to help more people um, in their own in, in their own environment. So, yeah, I think just I'm looking forward to seeing obviously the athletes that I coach continue to reach levels that they probably didn't think they could, um, but also just more broadly in the coaching scene here in Western Australia and Australia, yeah, more broadly is hopefully just is continuing to make coaching uh, be seen as a little bit more professional and, and to give people the opportunities to, to further their own development and learning as well. If someone was um, interested in reaching out to, to you for um, a coaching course or or to be to be coached, uh, what's the best way to approach you guys? Yeah, so just, we've got a lot of information um, on our website, which is yeah, just frontrunnersports.com.au. Um, yeah, we've often got a lot of information coming up, like coaching courses, um, which are run by by Raf, myself, and, and a few of the other physios and strength coaches that we have. Um, as well as, yeah, there's a few internship and, and mentorship options as well. So, yeah, uh, obviously it'd be great to, to have anyone get in touch if, if they're interested or they have questions. Um, but that website, yeah, definitely the best protocol. Nice. And uh, what are your aims running-wise going forward? <laughs> uh, just, just just to stay stay healthy at the moment. Um, yeah. As soon as, I, as soon as I started coaching, um, I think I let my own personal uh, health, I wouldn't say health, but personal fitness slip a little bit. Um, as as most runners get pretty obsessive with their running, I definitely get pretty obsessive with my coaching. So running, um, yeah, running is just a great way to stay stay fit, stay healthy. But um, I probably haven't had the consistency in the last ten years that what I'd like. I've I've sort of been battling, yeah, some Achilles and calf, and uh, and and as as most people will know, that's that's probably the area that that gets a little bit deconditioned as we get older. So. Um, I, I, I try to get out three, four times a week. It's just more for yeah, for health and, and a bit of social, um, social outcomes. My my partner's still um, still very much into her running and is, is chasing a goal. So I like to run with her as often as possible. And I've still got great mates that um, I either still coach or um, or I used to coach that um, that yes, you know, still run just for the joy of it as well. So it's just a great social opportunity to to catch up with them and and obviously keeps the keeps the stresses of work and life at bay as well. And um... Yeah, with uh, Front Runner, how, how many athletes um, have you got um, um, running for you and, and all the other coaches? And um, like, can you, I know this is probably a hard question, but who are you most excited about um, that um, of the Front Runners um, going into 2021? You know, at, hopeful that, um, you know, competitions start opening up and, and things um, return to somewhat normality. Yeah, yeah, we, we've obviously been lucky here in Perth. We've, we've had uh, a bit of a return to competition in the last few months, which, which has been great. Obviously, everyone's itching to, to get out there. Um, yeah, look, they're, they're, we've, got, we've got a great group at the moment. And um, the thing with, that we've always had with front runners, no matter what your level, you know, we're, we're happy to coach you. And, and I think the main evolution probably in the last couple of years is where we are starting to get a, a few more like a, you know, emerging elites coming through, which is really exciting. And Raf's done an incredible job with the marathon. So we've had had Nick Harmon sort of run two fourteen and, and represent Australia in the half marathon, and and Rochelle Rogers run two thirty four and, and represent Australia in the marathon as well. So my challenge is to try and get the the middle distance program sort of up to that level. And um, we've had some we've had some great runners come through. Um, Elaine Dutton has has won the Oceania Championships over eight hundred and fifteen hundred. Um, 
and uh, we just had a had a few runners sort of get to a get to a national level in recent years. But yeah, there's a couple of young guys I'm coaching that um, I think can definitely progress to a national level in the in the next few years. They're they're sort of still pretty raw, but they're building, and and there's a really good culture at the group at the moment where people I think are seeing the opportunities that if they do commit to their running and and they can give it sufficient time, then then really there's you know Perth and and, and front runner has. The, the culture and the um, the resources available to, to make that happen. So, yeah, just looking forward to seeing that grow. But um, but also, yeah, just more broadly, I think the recreational, the the junior pathway as well is something that I'm really excited about. If we can just give the opportunity for for any um any runners to to, to chase their best and, and see a pathway towards their personal goals, that might be for some people getting to the absolute top of the Olympics, or for other people, it might just be a sustainable you know, routine of running every week for, for the rest of their life. So, yeah, just, yeah, really excited about um, all those opportunities. Ben, I'm so grateful for your time. Um, I just wanted to finish up with one last um, uh, question. It was, if you were to sum up um, this chat, what, what are some of the, a couple of the parting, parting messages that you hope that um, the Australian distance running public get out of it? Um, if I was to sum up, um to like a, a one one of the biggest um learnings that i got out of it was it was um to not try to change everything all at once and uh be appreciative that um uh you know uh that we can't like you know if you change one thing something's probably got to give um and uh to to have that um thought um and then you know there's a lot of other great points but that was one that i i got out of it what What's uh, another one that um, yeah you'd come up with? Yeah, I, I think spot on. So probably the yeah the two themes that I always try to um, to communicate to all athletes and to coaches um, when they come into courses is is just just know the why. I think if you can understand like what are you doing, what why is it going to help, and and how you're going to effectively implement it, that's something that as a coach you just you always need to be asking yourself. So. From, from the from the smallest detail, so why is a rep 400 metres? Why are we taking 60 seconds of recovery? What is that recovery active? Are we wearing spikes? Are we in flats? And just continuing to challenge yourself to always have the answers to those questions because I think if you can't answer those questions, you, you really need to self-reflect and, and maybe change your plan of attack because essentially as coaches, you know, that's that's one of our major roles is, is to optimise that training prescription. So just when we're planning training and, and thinking broadly, where do I want the runner to go? How how is the runner progressing right now? There's um, we've we've often got the knowledge to help them, but we just really need to to get into the nitty gritty of, of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and yeah, I think that the trade offs is is another big one as well. So can people not only understand the benefits of adding something in, but potentially what are the costs? Um, and how do we optimize that for each individual? More is not necessarily better. Um, and for most runners, I would say sometimes doing something less, not necessarily less overall, but maybe less intensity, maybe less volume, um, maybe less runs in the week, et cetera, um, or maybe even just less sessional volumes or, or something like that. If they can actually do something more sustainably, but add in a consistent routine for long enough, then, then obviously there's the platform there to improve. So yeah, understand the benefits, but also understand potentially the trade-offs that are associated with that benefit and, and weigh it up against what they're already doing to, to optimize it for that particular runner you've got in front of you fantastic and then um probably the only other thing that I, I i just remembered was yeah not to be too reactive as well um if things aren't going going right um i thought that was a great point too 
Yeah, I, I, a good friend of mine um, who, who's in the UK now, Tim, he um, he always has a quote, forgive a horse a bad run. And, and that's something that sort of stuck with me where I sort of try to tell coaches that if, if something doesn't go to plan, um, yeah, don't, don't be reactive. You don't necessarily have to react to everything that happens. But of course, if a pattern emerges and there's consistent either underperformance or maybe the expectations that you and the athlete had are not being met, then obviously clearly there, there needs to be a change. But yeah, maybe maybe something external um, outside the uh, the runner itself impacted. So things like weather or um, or just life stresses impacted, and, and those stresses might not be there next week. Then obviously we don't need to react so much. But if, if consistently we're rocking up to, to Tuesday and we're really tired and we're really fatigued and we can't meet the demands of training, then okay, what are we doing on a Monday? What are we doing on a Sunday? Do we need to make a change there in order to achieve what we want on a Tuesday? But until that pattern emerges, I think we, we sometimes are a little bit reactive. Brilliant. Uh, so many runners across Australia are going to get a lot out of this. So thanks so much for your time, Ben. I've taken up a lot of it. Um, yeah, cheers for being part of the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, it was great to be on.